All right. Um, two weeks ago, we started trying to increase in gospel fluency by rather than looking at the gospel in systematic doctrinal terms, looking at it in thematic and narrative terms. Uh, there's not one way is not better than the other. It's just something I haven't heard a lot from uh, any pulpit is the gospel in thematic and narrative terms. So I, I've got this little series that I put together a few years ago for our singles group. Um, and, and then I taught it again to our youth group uh, when camp got canceled at the last minute um, because I canceled it. And then um, I think that's all the times I've ever taught. It. I've never preached it. So I'm trying to put a teaching series into preaching terms. So we're bouncing around in the scriptures a lot. But it's in order to establish this narrative theme of what the gospel is and what it does, right? So two weeks ago, we started with um, Mark 1.1 and what is the gospel. And we just said the gospel is good news. news. Um, And then I suggested that good news tends to invade dark spaces. That's how good news works. So we had to go look at the bad news. And the bad news is sin and the fall. And we said, here's basically what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 establishes. Genesis 1 says God created and it was good. Genesis 2 says God commanded and it was for our good. And then Genesis 3, we see the fall and all of creation being subjected to futility as a result, right? The fall was something caused by man sinning against the good commandment of God and and breaking the good creation of God as a result. Last week, we looked a little bit more at the human reality and what we've endured as a result of the fall and what's broken as a result of the fall. And what I said was we can take what's broken and look at it in three categories. You have the divine relationship, which was broken because sin creates a separation between us and God. We were created for divine relationship and sin broke that. Second, human relationships are broken. This is why the divorce rate is usually better than 50% nationwide. This is why we're constantly fighting with somebody in our personal lives. This is why we have all kinds of emotional distress and struggle, right? Because human relationships don't work like they're supposed to. And then third, we, we can see that all of creation doesn't really work like it's supposed to. So you plant a garden and you get thorns and thistles as a result. Um, then I said, everyone knows that everything is broken. Um, and the way that we know that everything is broken is that fear, shame, and guilt rule our lives left to ourselves like a three headed tyrant from which there is no escape. All of us have experiences with negative emotions and it, it comes from all kinds of places. It's not everybody didn't have a dad that didn't love them enough. Everybody didn't have a wife that cheated on them. Everybody didn't have kids that rebelled. But everybody's got something where we experience fear, we experience shame, and we experience guilt. And then we looked at the four bandages we use in an effort to fix what's been broken by sin. You can tell when I start reading my notes because I stutter. Uh, So the first one we looked at was the bandage of self, right? And the idea here is if I can just take what's good, what's working here and improve it 
and take what's bad and what's not working here and get rid of it, then I'll be satisfied. And the way that Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, says this is, we think that a better version of us will satisfy. The way that my therapist in Topeka says it is, we're always trying to establish a new operating system that works better than the old one. And it doesn't work. Because you can, you can go ahead and get jacked and get more tan and go get surgery and get some things augmented, right? And you're still going to be you. And eventually you're going to get old and it's all going to be wrinkly. There's nothing you can do to stop that. Everybody ends life pretty much the same way we came into it. Can't go to the bathroom on your own, can't walk, or you just go early, right? Second thing we, we go after is the bandage of others. And this is that insatiable desire to get the approval and the affection and the attention of other people. If I can just get other people to love me, then I'll feel okay. Then I'll feel satisfied. Problem with that is you get everybody in this room to love you. Next week, somebody else will show up and they won't and you'll be obsessed with making them worship you. And listen to me. You cannot bear the weight of the worship of another human being. You weren't made for that. It will destroy you. So that bandage doesn't work. The third one we looked at was the bandage of the world. And you could say sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Those are the things that the world goes after. But I'm trying to broaden it into everything that we seek to accumulate to make ourselves happy. Like, I've had 12, well, not, I haven't had all 12. Probably seven of the 12 versions of the iPhone, I've had them. And when I first get them, I'm like, now I'm complete. <laughs> and then a year later, the, the, the B version comes out, and I'm like, of course they add that. Now I need that. It's never enough. The new car eventually becomes an old car, the new house, nails start popping, right? So it's never enough. We're never satisfied with what we have. And we're never going to be with possessions because you can't have enough to fix the brokenness of your relationships with people or your relationship with God. Then the fourth thing we looked at is the bandage of religion. And this is where we say, I know what I can do. I'll establish a moral system by which I can bring God into my debt. A way to keep rules so that God is forced to like me. So that God is forced to do what I want him to do for me. All right? We looked at the Pharisees who tithe from their spice rack. And Jesus said, woe to you who do that. So what that tells us is there is nothing that we can do that's going to bring God into our debt, force God to approve of us. There's no religious system that we can use to make that happen. And then our lives are always marked by anxiousness and anxiety when we're trying to control God because it's the exact inverse of the way it was created. God is to control everything. He is sovereign. I am not. And to whatever degree you're trying to keep control, you're either going to be really anxious or you're going to be really mad all the time. So do you like to go off the drop of a hat when somebody does something that's like not even that annoying at home or at work? That's because you're a control freak. You lay in bed, banging your feet together at night, wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. That's because you're a control freak. That's because you're trying to control things that you're not designed to control. Why don't these bandages work? We looked at Mark 7. We saw where Jesus said, hey, 
It's not what goes into the man that defiles him. It's what's already in him that comes out of him that defiles him. And guess what you can't do with a bandage? You can't fix what's on the inside. Band-aids are for what's on the outside, right? Every little kid knows that. Band-aids make things better, but not on the inside. Band-aids don't fix headaches. The way I like to say this, some of you will be familiar with this. I didn't say it last week. I resisted the temptation, but it found its way into my review notes. And I like to get people to repeat this after me because I think it's really helpful. Right? It's like a mantra, but not a, you know because I'm starting a cult. <laughs> so think about it this way. Why am I a sinner? Think about the question. Why am I a sinner? And now I'm going to give you the answer. Repeat after me. I am not a sinner because I sin. I am not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. I sin because I'm a sinner. Well, we get it the other way, right? But it's, it, we're broken. We are helpless. There's nothing you can do to fix helplessness. So then we looked at the covenant. Genesis 3.15, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent, between his seed and your seed. The seed of the serpent is going to bruise you. The, the, the seed of the man on the heel and the seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent, crush the serpent on the head. This is God promising that there will be a redeemer. Then we ran, we ran to Romans 5. In Romans 5, verse 6, Paul says, While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We're helpless? Perfect. That's who Jesus died for. The way Jesus says this in the Gospels, I think in all three synoptic Gospels, he says, I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. The healthy don't need a physician. The sick do. Right? So I'm a sinner. I'm helpless. And Paul's saying at the right time, Christ died for the helpless. So this is the good news. What you couldn't do, Jesus did. Right? And then we ran to Calvary again. Actually, we ran to the wilderness and we saw Jesus being tempted and refusing the temptation. Then we saw Jesus serving people. Then we saw Jesus being accused. Then we saw Jesus hanging on the cross. Then we saw Jesus give up his life. And we saw that the veil that represented the separation between God and man was torn in the temple. Then we saw that the tomb is empty. And now, today, what we've got to do is talk about the response of faith. What do you do with all of that information that we've gotten in the last two weeks? Oh, boy. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7. All right, I'm going to go quick, so I'm begging you to pay attention. We'll get through this in as expedient a manner as possible. Great news. I found the exact right height for this music stand where I don't need my glasses. So very excited about that. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. Paul's writing to the Corinthians about a letter that he wrote to them that was kind of harsh. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance 
For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So really quick, let's talk about this word repentance. Everybody has some, like if you came up in church, you've got some idea of what the word repentance means. Like it means to turn, right? Or it means to change your mind. The simplest definition literally from the Greek is change your mind. Easiest way to understand what repentance is. So when somebody says repent, instead of getting uncomfortable and feeling like, you know, you're, you're, you're back at Awana or you're back in children's Sunday school, just remember that it just means you've got to change your mind. So when Paul says some of you had a sorrow that brought you to the point of repentance, what he's saying is you had a sorrow that got you to the point where you changed your mind about some things. But there is a sorrow that doesn't do that, that leads to death. And that's where you have regret, but you don't change your mind. Right? You're just mad that you got caught. You're not really, like it, nothing about you has changed because you got caught. So that's an easy one. You either think differently or you don't. But I want to look at six features of genuine repentance. We're going to start in Ephesians 5. Eight, you don't have to turn to these with me because it'll take too long. You, take my word for it or write them down, look them up later. Ephesians 5, 8 says, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the world. I'm going to take that parenthetic out. Listen to this. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. All right. First feature of like actual real mind change repentance is this. You see sin the way God sees sin because the light is on. We lived in the Philippines for a few months when I was a kid. And I'm pretty sure the national bird in the Philippines is the cockroach because those things fly and you can hear them. They're disgusting. I hate them. But you have no idea how many of them you're living with until you walk into the kitchen and cut the light on and see them scatter for darkness. You, don't, you just cannot imagine how many of them there are. And mom and dad would like bomb the house with these gas bombs where we had to leave for six hours and come back and just vacuum up dead roaches for an hour afterwards. They were everywhere. But this is what the gospel does. The gospel is that light that comes on and shows you exactly what's going on, Right? So Jesus is the light of the world, and he came that men might not walk in darkness. What that means is, by default, what we're doing is we're walking in darkness. You don't see things the way God sees things because you don't want to see things the way God sees things. Jesus kicks on the light, shows you exactly what you're made of and exactly what you're up to, and it affects the way that you think. You can't help it. You see sin the way God sees sin. Second, Psalm 38, 1 through 10. 
A psalm of David, a memorial. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Think, okay, think with me. Have you ever felt like this? It's weird to preach without a mic because I have to like, I feel like I'm monotone at the same volume. I need to be more dynamic, but I can't be or you won't hear me. Rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger. Some of you felt that way like about your parents, right? Rebuke me not in your wrath. Father, chasten me not in your burning anger. But you get to this place when you see sin the way God sees sin, where you you feel Psalm 38 about your heavenly father. Rebuke me not in your wrath, chasten me not in your burning arrow, for your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand has pressed down on me. Have you felt that? Where God's just pressing on you and all you experience is guilt and shame and fear. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. The only thing I feel is that God is angry with me. That's what the psalmist is saying. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. My loins, my guts are burning over the guilt of my sin. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. You ever pray like this? God, oh. You should, because the second thing I think that tells us our repentance is genuine is that, <laughs> is that we feel the sorrow of being a sinner. So you see sin the way God sees sin, and then you feel a certain kind of way about it when you see that your sin is what it is, and God sees it the way he sees it. It doesn't bring about joy. It brings about sorrow. What David's talking about in Psalm 38 is what humans ought to feel when they discover some species of sin operative in their heart. That's what it should look like. That's what repentance looks like. Sorrowful. Third, in Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus tells a parable. It's very familiar. You guys all know this. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One of them stands in the front praying thus, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, you hear that and you're like, what a scoundrel. Except you forgot that you pray like that all the time. And so do I. And it's okay. I do thank God that I'm not like some people. Because I recognize this by the grace of God, I'm not like those people. When I see some heroin-addled meth-head rock star on the TV, I'm like, thank you, God, that I didn't end up like that, chasing my dreams of being a musician. Appreciate it. But this guy is standing there thinking that he's justified in the sight of God because he doesn't behave like other people. And the only reason he doesn't behave like other people is because he's awesome and they're not. And then there's another guy praying, standing in the back, can't even lift his eyes up beating his breast and saying, be merciful to me, God, the sinner. Repentance does not stick its chest out and brag. Repentance 
is ashamed of sin, but it does not hide from God. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 should be also familiar. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So genuine repentance, see sin the way God sees sin, feel sorrow over sin because I know it's my sin that we're looking at, is ashamed as a result of the sin, but then doesn't go run and hide, doesn't go make some fig leaf garments. You ascend the steps of the witness seat and you confess, which just means you say the same thing as God about your sin. You call it what God calls it. That's what repentance does. Sees, sorrows, has shame, confesses. That's four. Let's look at number five. Romans 7, 21 through 24. Paul says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Okay, me too. I find that. Do you all find that? Evil's present with me. You're like, yes, three rows in front of me to the left. Evil's present with me. No, 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 no. (laughs) Talking about you. Just if you're by yourself in this room, evil's present with you. You're like, oh, the demons. Because I read Frank Peretti novels. No. Not talking about the demons, talking about you, just you, but in your own heart, in your own mind, this reality exists. Evil is present with you. Lost my place. Ah, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Let me say that a different way. I love everything that Jesus told us to do. I love it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're all, we all love that, right? I want, I want to. Love your neighbor as yourself? Absolutely. I want to do that. I don't love God with one ounce, relatively speaking, of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like compared to whatever you spent most of your time doing this week for, for pleasure, Right? And I, don't want to, I want to be real careful because I don't want to put us on some kind of a metric where we go, oh, okay, so as long as I read my Bible more than I play video games. No, no, no. Forget, forget that. I'm just saying most of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is given to other things. But I, I do want to love him with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. But I don't do it because evil's present with me. I want to love my neighbor, but sometimes I get mad at my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Well, who did Jesus say the neighbor is to the, to the dude that got beat up and left for dead in the gutter of the street? Some priests go by and they don't help him, but some Samaritan walks by and does help him. So like your neighbor is whoever. That's everybody. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. We're not doing it because evil's present with us. That's what he's saying. I see a different law in the members of my body working itself out. Uh, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? This is Paul doing what we all do about the time you hit 35 and you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you're like, hey, I haven't committed a new sin in 20 years, but I'm still sinning. 
Maybe I should just die. That's what he's saying. Like, who, who's going to deliver me from this vessel where evil is always present? In Galatians 5, he says it this way. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I say, walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. There you go. You want to stop carrying out the desire of the flesh? Walk by the Spirit. Problem solved. Oh, except that he goes on to say this. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Let me tell you what I think that means. This is heresy, okay? Because uh, I like to play fast and loose with the gospel. I think Jesus really died for sinners. Paul is saying that you've got this new spirit and these new desires in you when you're a Christian that oppose the old desires that you used to have. But guess what? The old desires are still there too. So even when you're doing good, evil's present with you. And when you're sinning, you can't really enjoy it. Because the spirit is in opposition to the flesh that you may not do the things that you please. You're like, what does this have to do with repentance? Well, it hates sin. Repentance hates sin. So if you want to know, is my repentance genuine? Well, do you kind of like rub your hands together and lick your lips in anticipation of the next sin that you're going to do? Because that's not a good sign. There ought to be something going on in your heart where you're not like planning out evil in your bed at night. Or you've not repented. Everybody here is probably now terrified because all of us have thoughts that go through our minds, right? And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about designing it the way the psalmist describes it. You don't sin and enjoy it. You hate it. Sixth. And we're going we're gonna to start, now we're going to start looking at verses together. I'm such a liar. There's, there's no way I'm going to be done in 30-minute time limit. Luke 9, 23. But now I can blame it on you guys. You can be like, it just took you too long to turn in your Bibles. Luke 9, verse 23. This is the sixth one. So we've got uh, five so far. Repentance sees sin the way God sees sin. Repentance has sorrow over sin. Repentance has shame over sin. Repentance confesses sin. Repentance hates sin. This is number six. We'll see if you can figure it out as we're reading. He was saying to them all, Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, if you were raised in a good Southern Baptist environment, you hear that verse and you're like, I know number six. I got it. It's number six figured out. Number six is you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. And I would say, amen, absolutely, hallelujah, you got it, but it's not what you think. This is what repentance does sixth. Repentance abandons hope in self. So if you are sitting here right now fervently getting these lists together in your head of how you're going to make sure your repentance is genuine, you're already, the boat's already gone and you're still standing on the dock. You missed the point, but it's okay because we're going to turn it around and come back and pick you up. All right? Just stay put. 
The gospel paints this truth in vivid colors. And what I want to do is walk through some of it together before we close. We'll start in Matthew 8. Repentance abandons hope in self. Matthew 8, verse 14 and 15. Jesus came into Peter's home. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand. The fever left her. She got up and waited on him, which is what mothers-in-law should do. (laughs) I'm just messing. Uh, What did Peter's mother-in-law, listen, this is so important. So important, Jeremiah. How dare you sneeze in the middle of my sermon. I'm just joking, buddy. What did Peter's mother-in-law contribute to her getting better? What'd she do there? Come on. Nothing. Nothing. Very good, you two. Verse 23, same chapter. Through 26, he got into a boat. His disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. I think it's in Mark where it says that the disciples said, um, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And then he gets up and calms the wind and the waves. So my question here would be, what stilled the raging sea? The disciples panicking or Jesus? All right, let's keep going. Verse 28. I'm not even going to read this. I'm just going to tell you the story because we don't have time. He goes into the country of the Gerasenes. There's a dude there that's possessed by demons that they try to bind him with chains and stuff. And he just rips the chains off and rips his clothes off and runs around in the graveyard hollering and yelling at people. Ah! Right? (coughs) Jesus shows up commands the demons to come out. They go out into a herd of pigs and the pigs, it doesn't matter what happens to them. The important thing is, what does the demoniac contribute to his own salvation? Come on, we got to get this side of the room involved. What does the demoniac contribute to his salvation? Very good. Let's keep going. Matthew 9. 2. They brought him a paralytic. Guess what's going to happen, everybody? No. Paralytics. Oh, dude. Hold on. I got you. Hold on. Your chance is coming. All right. Paralytic is going to get healed. healed. Help him out. All right. And then who, who, what did the paralytic contribute to his healing? Nothing. Come on. There we go. Perfect. It contributes nothing. Right? Let's keep going. Uh, I walked away from my notes. Same chapter, 920. A woman had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, came up behind him, touched the fringe of his cloak. She was saying to himself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. But I want to look at a different version of this story. So just flip over to Mark chapter 5. Because Mark gives us some more details. In 525, but keep, oh man, I should have told you, keep a finger in Matthew 9 because we're going to bounce back there in a minute. That's all right. <clears throat> It'll still be there. You can find it. Mark 5, 25 
says a woman had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians. Come on now. Endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. So healthcare hasn't changed a lot. <laughs> After hearing about Jesus, that wasn't fair. I don't mean that. I just, in some ways. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. And she thought, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. So let's sound it out together. All right. Did her diet help her? Did taking vitamins help her? Did physicians for 12 years help her? Nope. Says it made it worse. Did all of her money help her? Did Jesus uh, walking by and her, did her grabbing his cloak help her? Careful. The answer is no. So what happened here? There's a, there's a more vivid picture if we just keep going in Mark 5. Look at verse 35. Because he was on his way to this house already when this lady showed up in the crowd. He's on his way to the house of a synagogue official whose daughter is either dying or already dead. While he was still speaking, they came to the house. They came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, "Your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher anymore." But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, "Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe." He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people were loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? This child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where she was and taking the child by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated little maiden arise. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old and immediately they were completely astounded. I said last week Jesus never met a corpse that stayed that way. There's a perfect example of that. What saved this little maiden? Did her father save her? Did her mother save her? Did all these people moaning and wailing save her? Did them laughing at Jesus save her? What saved her? Yeah, so go back to Matthew 9. 27. Jesus gives a blind, blind dude and his buddy both their sight back. Guess what? They didn't contribute anything to getting their sight back. Jesus did it. 35. He's going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see it yet? Who is going to help these people? And nobody else. There is nobody else to help them. One more. I'm going to just read this one to you. In Mark 9, 
Jesus gets down off the Mount of Transfiguration. They come back to the disciples. They see a crowd. They see a bunch of people arguing. And, and so he says, what are you guys arguing about? And one of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, possessed with a demon that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And his father said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can. All things are possible for them who believe. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So here's what I'm proposing. Who helped all these people? Jesus. Okay. And what did they contribute? They believed. See, repentance sees sin the way God sees sin. Repentance has sorrow over sin. Repentance is ashamed of sin. Repentance confesses sin. Repentance hates sin. And then repentance happened because I believed what God said. I believed Jesus. So repentance gives up on self and says, I'm going to throw it all on him, all at his feet. Think about what Jesus is saying. If anyone's going to come after me, he has to deny himself, take up my cross and follow me. He also says, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my burden upon you, for my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Set down that stuff you're hauling around behind you and pick up your cross and follow me instead because, brothers and sisters, Jesus' load is way lighter than the one you're under because of your sin right now. You're not going to save yourself. He's already done everything to save you. So quit trying to climb up there and stick your own little splinter in the cross and be like, see, I did something too. No, you didn't. All you contribute is your sin. I'll prove it to you, but yeah, we're, we're way late here. I'll just give you one verse to prove it. In John 6, Jesus is talking to some teachers and Pharisees. And, and, and he says a lot. And they finally say, okay, Jesus, 28, I think it's 628. What do you do? What do we do to do the works of God? How do we do whatever we've got to do so that we can get eternal life? And Jesus says, you want to do the work of God? John 6, 29, here's what you do. Believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work that you do in order to be rid of your sin. Believe in Jesus and then you will repent. Repentance is the fruit of faith, not the foundation of faith. Repentance happens because you believe in him, not because you're hoping he'll believe in you. This is the response of faith, repentance and belief. 
The gospel's the good news. What's the bad news? Sin's the bad news. Who sinned? I sinned. What happened because of it? Broke the divine relationship. Broke this relationship. Broke everything around me. What's the solution? Jesus is the solution. What do I do with him? Believe in him. And then you'll find that your mind changes about your sin. Every day that goes by, you hate your sin a little more and and love Jesus a little more every day. That's what we contribute. I love Jesus. I hate my sin. Let's pray.